And turn once again in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 14. Hear now the inspired word of God. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a, to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do, do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposed a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortress, fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in, the, in anger nor in battle. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter into the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army, so the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before, for ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action so he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. 
Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help and many will join them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. So far, the reading of the word of God, let's pray. Father, once again, as we look into this word, we pray that you would give us insight, understanding, and clarity to understand what you have to say to your church. And that understanding it, Father, we would apply it to our lives and that we would become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I have a pet peeve. Well, actually, I have more than one pet peeve, but only one I'm going to mention this morning. Simply this. I I hate stories that end without resolving the issues in the plot. In other words, they leave you hanging with, with unanswered questions. Now, this happens in literature, in the movies, and television. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes authors love to leave you hanging and want you to make your, your own conclusion. But so, and sometimes it's unavoidable uh, due to circumstances. I'll give an example. Ginger and I were watching a television series a number of years ago, and we watched it for several seasons. And at the season finale, one of the main characters is shot. And the last scene you see is him laying on the floor. Then the series was canceled. (laughs) I wanted to know what happened. (laughs) It's a pet peeve of mine. Sometimes a poor ending is simply a result of bad writing. I think I hate that most of all. Now, a good ending doesn't mean that the, the prince gets the girl and they ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. That's not necessary for, to have a good ending. Because sometimes the protagonist in good literature is called to make some great sacrifice uh, to resolve the tension in the, in the literature. Casablanca, my favorite movie of all time, is, it epitomizes that. And I know the ending of that movie is debated whether it's the right ending or not. I think it's perfect. But sometimes when I finish reading a book and there's a bad ending, I put the book down and feel I just wasted my time. But I never feel that way when I read scripture. Even those parts of scripture that we have a tendency to skip over uh, you know what I'm talking about, the begat sections, the, uh, the lineage, the details of constructing the tabernacle. You've got to be honest. You don't look for, oh, I can't wait to read this. <laughs> we would much rather read of the exploits of the, the mighty men in battle, Samson against the Philistines. The miracles of Jesus. Those things are much more interesting. 
Yet we have the authoritative word of God telling us that all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Yes, all scripture is useful for those purposes. But we also recognize that some things in scriptures are hard to understand. Let me pick out one text at random. How about Daniel 11? Just random. <laughs> We've been moving along in Daniel with visions of beasts, angelic visitors, spiritual warfare. And all of this has been given to us in prophetic and apocalyptic language. We have beasts with human characteristics and humans with beastly characteristics. Horned beasts, beasts with wings, many-headed beasts. It's been a fantastic journey as we've been moving through, through Daniel. In fact, I told you in the very first sermon on Daniel, I told you that this was a fantastic book, and I believe it's lived up to that. In chapter 10, we had the curtain between the spiritual realm and the material realm uh, pulled back for us so that we have a glimpse into the spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes. Paul told us about that realm as well. In fact, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6.12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces, of this darkness against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we've seen all of that in the book of Daniel. Now we come to chapter 11. And here we're given a vision of the future battles from Daniel's time. Not with the curtain drawn back, we're not looking into the spiritual realm anymore, but What's happening here on earth in the battles? And the focus turns from Babylon now to the beautiful land, as they call it, the, the land of Israel, the land of promise. But keep in mind that we've, all, we've all already learned the lesson that what takes place on earth has been determined in heaven. So then, what is the meaning of Daniel 11. It begins by describing the fall of Persia and then the fall of Greece. And there's a timeline given to us by Daniel. It's, it, it occurs during the reign of Darius the Mede. That's when the vision comes. Look at verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Now remember this as well. Daniel has continued to be loyal to God and yet serve his earthly kings with respect and integrity. That's a difficult task, and yet he has done it magnificently. It's one of the major lessons that we derive from the book of Daniel so far because it gives us an idea, a pattern, if you will, on how should we behave living in a godless society, how do, we, how do we look towards our governing officials? We can take some lessons from Daniel. But we've seen this is his 
lifelong characteristic. From the first chapter when he was a a 20-year-old captive led into Babylon until his old age in the Persian government. And the prophecy that began in chapter 10 continues in in verse 2. It says, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong enough, uh, strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now remember, all of the visions, dreams, and prophecies of the book of Daniel are related to one another. We already know that Greece is going to rise up and defeat the Medes and Persians. We, we know that from the first vision of the book. Verse 3 describes again the rise of Alexander the Great. And a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But we know from the previous prophecies that his rule is going to be a relatively short one. Alexander dies at a young age and the kingdom is passed not to his sons but to four specific generals. And that's repeated here in verse 4. But as soon as he has arisen, the kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others beside them. And so what follows that verse in the rest of chapter 11 is still in the timeline of the entire book of of Daniel. So let's, let's do, I'm going to do a very short review. This will not be comprehensive, but I just want to give you a little review to put this section in, in context. We will, at, before the series concludes, we will do a, an entire review of Daniel, but not for today. So remember, remember the first vision of the statue to Nebuchadnezzar sets the timeline for the entire book. Four successive empires will rise up and rule the world. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece, and then Rome. Each one portrayed by a different medal in the statue, and each one succeeding the one that it conquers, and different characteristics in each of these, in each of these kingdoms. And then during the time of the fourth kingdom, which is Rome, another kingdom will be established. This is the kingdom of God, which is represented by the stone that was cut without hands. And it's cast at the statue and it smashes it to pieces. And in fact, it's described, the the remnants of the statue is described as like the chaff that is blown from the threshing floor and just the wind carries it away. But the kingdom of God, that stone cut without hands, will fill the whole earth. When is this going to happen? When is the stone cast at the statue? Can we, can we see from any of the visions what, when this will happen? And the answer is absolutely yes. The kingdom of God comes to earth in the form of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Just think of it. And, and when we talk about a timeline, 
when we talk about the ministry of Jesus, we're talking about his entire ministry, not just one aspect of it. It's not just the resurrection. It's not just the ascension. But it's the, entire, the entirety of his ministry. His incarna- it begins at his incarnation, his baptism, his sinless life, his triumphal entry when he is presented to Israel as the king, the atonement on the cross, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, uh, when he enters heaven and, and is given the kingdom, and he assumes that throne at the right hand of God. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have the full revelation of the kingdom of God. The stone begins growing in Jerusalem. And then is to expand, just as Christ commanded his apostles. Remember, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice what he says. All authority has been given. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. And they've even given a a format, a plan on how to do that, given in Acts 1.8. As Jesus is ascending into heaven, he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now that's a vast, oversimplified view of the prophecies of Daniel. But we must add one more point. With the kingdom of God comes the institution of a new covenant. And we all know that. Praise God for that new covenant. But the introduction of the new covenant means the end of the old. The author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31. And he says this, and this is a super important portion of scripture. Hebrews 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, and this is the quote from Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And then it concludes in verse 13. When he said, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old, is ready to disappear.
that text is crucial for understanding Daniel. The new covenant puts an end to the old covenant. And that's reflected in the language when the, when the, the prophecy speaks about the end times. What is ending? It's not necessarily talking about the end of the world. But it's the ending of the old covenant period. When, see, when Christ came, comes on the scene, the people of Israel are faced with a choice. Receive Jesus as the Messiah, enter into the new covenant in his blood, or reject him. The choice is clear. There's no neutrality. There's no, there's no Switzerland. There's no DMZ for you Vietnam vets. There is no such thing. The choice is clear. Jesus came fulfilling all the prophecies concerning the Messiah. Just think of it this way. Jesus comes on the scene. They have the old covenant predicting and foretelling of the Messiah. And Jesus comes and fills all of those prophecies, his lineage and his family, his birthplace. The message he proclaimed. Remember when he was in, uh, John the Baptist was in jail. He says, are you the one? He says, this, tell John this is what I came to preach, to set the captives free, etc., etc." The angels announced his birth. The Holy Spirit descends on him at his baptism like a dove. The heavens open and God the Father declares, this is my beloved son. The timing of his appearance can, can coincides with the 70 weeks of Daniel perfectly. You have his death and resurrection, right, according to Scripture. And his ascension into heaven, again, lining up with the vision of Daniel 7. All of this evidence, and did Israel heed him? John the, the Apostle tells us in verse 11 of his chapter 1, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. They rejected him. And then even when he's before Pilate, Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And do you remember what the chief priest said? We have no king but Caesar. And then Pilate, wanting no part of this, he washes his hands in front of the crowd, says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And remember, and this, was, this is really chilling. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us, on our children. Christ told them that judgment would come upon those who failed to follow him. The parable of the vineyard owner is particularly damning to them. Remember the vineyard owner leaves, hires out his vineyard to vintners. And he sends emissaries to check up on it. They stone him and they beat him up. He says, well, surely I'll, if I send my son, they'll listen. And they kill his son. And Jesus makes it very clear. They, they knew that he was talking about them. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 21, 43. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. 
kingdom of God, the end of the old covenant, is taken away and given to the new covenant church. The Olivet Discourse of Matthew 25, which dovetails the prophecies of Daniel and Ezra, Jeremiah, Zechariah, just to name a few. We could go on and on. What's the point of this? The prophecies of Daniel 10 to 12, the last three chapters, bring us up to the time of the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant. That's the main point of Daniel. The focus turns from the four kingdoms succeeding one another to what will happen when the kingdom of God comes during the rule of Rome. That's what we read about in Daniel 11. We can see from the text the prophetic and the apocalyptic language describing the battles that are taking place all around Israel. Do you realize that this time in Israel, when Christ comes on the scene, was in the middle of the Pax Romana, and yet there were battles and wars and rumors of war all over the place. It was also a hub for demonic activity. All of Satan's legions were focused on the beautiful land, on Israel, at the time of Christ. Why? Because Satan knew that that's where the battle, that was the, the battle of the ages was being fought. That's what we're seeing in Daniel 11. That's what we read this morning. What was prophecy to Daniel is now history to us. You know, biblical scholars have worked painstakingly to reconcile the prophecies of Daniel to the history that we have recorded for us. We, we just read this morning, we have descriptions of the campaigns of the king of the north, the king of the south. We've read of commanders of armies and, and also those who were deceitful and sly and came with smooth words. But we see the centerpiece of the prophecies are the beautiful land and the people of the holy covenant. This is a difficult passage to interpret. I say that, and I can say that kind of authoritatively, because if you go through the commentaries, it's hard to find two people that agree. So if it's difficult to understand, how does one preach from this? Many pastors avoid this portion of scripture. You'll find, you won't find a ton of sermons on it. In fact, in Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on Daniel, he agrees, and this is, this is a quote from his commentary. We may therefore sympathize with the words of one scholar who commented on Daniel 11. We do not see how it could be used for a sermon or for sermons. <laughs> but ignoring a portion of scripture is not acceptable to the church. Amen. We can't say, oh, well, that's too difficult. We're not going to handle that. Why? Because we hold not just to the doctrine of sola scriptura, but toto scriptura. That means scripture alone is our authority for our authoritative norm, but not just some of scripture, all of it. We must understand that varying portions of scripture are, are useful for different purposes. Some scripture is historical narrative. It, it gives us the history of redemption in the context of the history of the material world. 
Some of it is clearly didactic in nature. That means it's useful for, for teaching and instruction. The begat sections, begat sections are, are important. In fact, I know a man who was saved just reading the begat sections. And a failure to grasp the different types of literature can lead to <coughs> poor theology, which is reflected in the way we live. The text of Daniel 11 is prophecy, which is history recorded before it happens in time. Keep in mind, the subject of prophecy is ultimately and always Jesus Christ. The history recorded in the prophetic words are related to the person and work of Christ always. They're not just given to fill in the blanks of history, although that does happen. So what do we do with Daniel 11? Well, in our timeline of chapter 11 so far, we've seen the rise and the fall of Greece, the third kingdom of, the, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Everything else in these last two chapters takes place in the rule of Rome, the fourth kingdom, and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. While these events are important, extremely important, it is not necessary for our purposes in preaching the word for our edification to, to attach a name or a kingdom to each king and nation mentioned in these chapters. Not that that's not a fruitful endeavor, but not for our purposes in the worship service. Unraveling those aspects of the prophecy is better left for personal study, Bible study. Maybe we can do that on a Wednesday night. Because it would be very easy to get bogged down in those details in a sermon and miss the relevance of these events for the cause of the gospel. While there are lessons in history in Daniel 11, and I don't mean to negate their importance, but the primary purpose of the text is not historical. It is a message from God to his covenant people concerning what to expect in their future. They will return to the land of promise, the beautiful land, but not without struggle, not without hardship, not without uh, persecution. But the promise of the Messiah is at the heart of the entire message. And that should not be lost in our preaching and in our exposition of the text. Once again, I want to give a short quotation from Sinclair Ferguson, who comments, he says, at this point in our study of Daniel 11, all teachers and preachers must face the inevitable, inevitable question. How is such a passage as this profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness? Should we not simply accept the verdict that this section is valuable only as an outline of ancient history? The answer must be no, for two reasons. First, since all scripture is profitable, just because a certain portion is difficult to follow, we do not have the right to merely skip over it, ignore it, or cover it superficially. As I mentioned earlier, we are told in Scripture that there are portions of Scripture that are hard to understand. Peter tells us concerning Paul's writings in the New Testament. He says, Paul, he, he writes some things that are really hard to understand. But then he warns us not to leave those for the untaught and unstable, for they distort these writings 
to their own destruction, and as teachers, they bring others into destruction with them. We also have an admonition from the book of Proverbs. Let me read Proverbs 2, a few verses. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as for silver and find the hidden treasure laying right in the middle of the road, uh, then you... It doesn't say that, by the way, just in case you were wondering. You search for her as for hidden wisdom, hidden treasure. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord. The writer of Proverbs is telling us, you want biblical wisdom? Sometimes you have to search for it. It's not just laying around on the side of the road for you to find. Bible study takes work. It takes expertise. It takes practice. That's why Paul admonishes the believer in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed. But the second reason that we just can't relegate these words to a history lesson is that it is not merely history. It's prophecy. God is foretelling the future events of his kingdom to Daniel in a remarkable way. He is relating the events of the coming of the Messiah and the end of the Old Covenant era. And Jesus Christ is Lord over history, all history. And that is how we are going to deal with these last few chapters of Daniel. We're not going to get bogged down in our worship service trying to figure out all of the incidentals over whose wife is this and whose husband is that. Much of that would be mere speculation anyway. So we're going to look at the context, and for the remainder of this the sermon, which will be brief, I want to look at three lessons that we can learn from Daniel 11 already. And then as we come to close the close of the book of Daniel, we're going to look at how these events foretold to Daniel in relation to the entire covenant of redemption. So what do we learn from these events in Daniel 11? First, Daniel shows us the precarious nature of the kingdoms of the earth. We have seen this from the first vision of Nebuchadnezzar right up to the present vision. Babylon rises, Babylon falls. Persia rises, Persia falls. Greece rises and falls. Same thing with Rome. But Daniel gives us a bit of a deeper look into this instability. Even within each victorious kingdom, there is intrigue treachery. There are coups, revolts, and murders, even within households. That's the history of the world. And it continues up to this very day. The only kingdom that lasts and will last forever is the kingdom of God. The stone which smashes all other kingdoms and grows to fill the whole earth. But don't forget the important peak God gave us behind the curtain. For though we see chaos in this world, God is behind all the strategies of mankind and using his vain attempts to usurp the kingdom of God for his benefit. I once heard a great illustration about the kingdom of God. You ever see a tapestry? Beautiful, woven, and it's 
pictures and details. You ever see the other side? Well, the other side is, that's us. We live and we're looking at and we see threads going here. There makes no sense whatsoever to us. But when we see it from God's perspective, it's a beautiful, complete tapestry that is perfect. And that's what we need to keep in mind. Second lesson, God uses the kingdoms of this world to accomplish his purposes. Daniel is one of the clearest pictures of that in all of scripture. Israel, God's chosen people, the Messiah was to come to earth through them. The story of the Old Testament details how constantly they failed in their primary mission. If you read the book of Judges, we see there's a sin cycle. It goes on and on and on throughout the entire book of Judges. The people would fall into sin. God would send judgment. They would repent. God would then give prosperity. That was short-lived. Then they would sin again. God would send judgment. Then they would repent. God would bless them again, over and over again. That's the sin cycle. In Daniel's day, God used Babylon to capture the people of God and carry them out of their land. And since the land of Israel represented blessings from God, removal from the land represented serious judgment from God. But notice that God uses Babylon as both punishment upon the unfaithful, but also he uses the pagan king to assure that his plan of redemption moves forward. First through Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar elevates Daniel, gives him run of the kingdom. Cyrus issues the the decree to return to the land. Artaxerxes permits Nehemiah to go and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. God will now not allow his plan to fail, but if he uses a pagan king or nation, it's a shame to the people of God. Third lesson, and that is simply this, to bring comfort and encouragement to the people of God who find themselves in the midst of spiritual warfare. Anybody here today who's not experiencing some sort of spiritual warfare? Boy, we have it in our nation today, do we not? When you look around this world and you see the misery, the heartache brought about by sinful people, remember that behind the curtain, Almighty God is on his throne and no one can thwart his plan. You heard a sermon a few weeks ago on Psalm 2. The nations rage against Almighty God. They consistently try to cast off his law. But God in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at their meager efforts. Why? Because he has given the nations of the earth to his son as an inheritance. And because of his sovereignty, he can make the promise to his people that all things, even evil things that happen to them, even the evil things that you bring on yourself, he will turn that around and cause it to work for your good. Even Daniel 11.35 Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. So yes, among my many pet peeves, it's just movies and literature with poor endings. But that never is the case with scripture. Every time I read scripture, I get encouraged because God is working all things together 
for good, the good of his church and for his glory. But when you read about what Christ went through to save his people, how can you not be comforted and encouraged? And though he suffered so much at the hand of his enemies, the ending is perfect. He is in glory, waiting for his church to accomplish the mission he commanded. And at the end of the age, he will come again in glory and power and present his church without spot or blemish to his father. And we will be with him and we will be like him for all eternity. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that promise isn't for you. Things are not going to work together for your good. They're going to work together for your destruction. I would encourage you to turn to the Savior. Repent of your sin. Come to know Jesus Christ. Let's pray.